Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to look at a collection of stories that are mostly humorous and, well, they're humorous to look back on. Let me just say that. Uh, there are a collection of stories that I found from the pioneer era of Lansing, Michigan. And I previously did an episode on some of the early pioneer stories of Daniel Mevis as a boy. And in his collection of stories, he also has a lot of interesting anecdotes about other events and things that happened around Lansing, Michigan when he was growing up, including a few stories that were told and a few of his own experiences. And so in this collection, I found these stories to be quite funny. So I thought I would put them all together in this episode and share some of them with you. So come along and join me. And oh, there's a witch story in here too. Perfect for Halloween. So the book I'm referring to today was entitled Pioneer Recollections, Semi-Historic Sidelights on the Early Days of Lansing, Michigan. And it was written by a man named Daniel Mevis. And it comes from his growing up in the Lansing area starting in the 1840s. So just because it's October, I'm going to go ahead and start with the first story called A Witch Story. And this is a story that he was told growing up as a kid. And he put this story within his collection, including a lot of personal anecdotes and experiences that he had growing up. And so it begins, this was a story that I heard my mother tell during a time when so many good people verily believed in these hobgoblins. The story was like this. On a country road in western New York, there lived an old couple and their only son. The son was a good, steady, industrious boy. For a time, he seemed to be going into a decline. His appetite failed him. He became morose and seemed to be weighed down by some great sorrow. It was feared that he was about to be very sick, although he claimed he was not sick. His girl had not gone back on him or anything of that kind, finally his father demanded an explanation, and the boy yielded and made a clean breast of the whole matter. As soon as he was abed and asleep, a witch would enter the chamber through the open window and would, by the proper exercise of her magic wand, turn him into a horse and ride him away to a distant cemetery. She would tie him to the fence and enter the cemetery, and after spending some time there, return, mount him, and ride him home with this same wand, change him back to his normal condition, though nearly exhausted, and leave him in bed to finish the night. He had been too fearful of consequences to dare to mention it to anyone. The old gentleman thought he could see through the whole secret and said to his son, Now, John, when she rides you away tonight, just look sharp to see which way she heads you. And be sure to notice things along the road. Mark the route well, so you will know it by daylight. And at the fence, paw on the ground, gnaw the top board good and plenty, so you will be able to recognize it tomorrow. There is a pot of gold buried in that old burying ground, I'll warrant. So, so convinced of this was his father that the old gentleman was up the following morning, long before daybreak, and he gave his horse her morning feed, and he put a spade or two in the cart and had the rig ready for an early start, nervously anxious for that kettle of gold. 
Therefore, as soon as it was light enough to see his way, while the old lady was putting on her hasty lunch, the head of the family mounted the ladder to call John. But what a sight! What a smell! John was there, fast asleep, but such a looking bed, all in a heap, and the headboard was gnawed and splintered beyond recognition. The footboard was kicked completely out and lay on the floor in two pieces. Pot of gold? Oh, no. And that's the end of the story. The next story is called Feared Windstorms. You will undoubtedly remember E.E. Beebe, one of our then most eccentric businessmen who built him a home over on Cedar Street, mostly underground, on account of his extreme fear of windstorms and who want to express his views on political and social questions in such a peculiar and striking manner that it raised in their mind grave doubts as to his sanity. And yet he was one of the best-known men in town. And then there was the kind-hearted old Dr. D.G. McClure, who built and ran a drugstore on the site of the Hollister Block. How I pitied the poor old man. One morning, soon after building his new shop and it was finished, some vandal had painted in large letters on the cornice, Hey, oats and stabling while the old doctor slept of course it was a painfully plain building and did resemble a stable but it grieved the old gentleman very much and he offered 25 cents reward for the perpetrator the store finally burned down during the burning the old man was so bent on saving his wines and liquors that he forgot a certain tin box under his bed in the back room containing money and valuable papers, all of which went up in smoke together with a wad of banknotes hid in the cellar wall. However, all of the high wines were saved, as was the old box stove on the first floor, and his mortar and his pestle. I can easily remember the last time I was in the store, and it was rather early in the morning. I was after a half pound of sulfur. Mother had the molasses and we were doctoring for the Michigan itch. The old man was splitting matches and cursing the rats. They had very nearly destroyed a small roll of bills the doctor had hid away in some crack or corner for safekeeping. This seemed to be his peculiar banking system. And that's the little anecdote about these two individuals, the man who built his shop below ground because he feared windstorms, and this peculiar doctor who wasn't a very good carpenter, I guess you would say. Now here's another peculiar story. It is the story of the first surgical operation that was performed in Lansing. He says the first surgical operation to be formed in Lansing took place at the house of Dr. Goucher, which stood where the Downing Hotel dining room is now on West Washtenaw Street. Remember, this book was written in 1911. The victim was one Elisha Briggs, a stranger in town, whose leg was broken accidentally in alighting from the stage. He was taken into Dr. Goucher's office for care and treatment. The doctor said he had never set a broken leg, nor arm, as for that matter, but he thought he could cut it off. And according to his opinion, that would be the best thing to do anyways. So accordingly, he secured the assistance of Dr. Crawford, and the twain cut the unfortunate man's leg off the best they could. Of course, the man died. The stranger had a well-filled purse on his persons, and the doctors took charge of the purse, and a young man by the name of Daniel Buck took charge of the remain and buried them in the potter's field in the village cemetery which is on Cedar Street and Michigan Avenue, now east side of the park. Potter's Field was down near a frog pond, now the artificial lake. It was only a few blocks south of this that one 
Oliver Rice was terribly frightened a few years later. Oliver was working a scraper in that area and uncovered an Indian skeleton. And it frightened Oliver quite a bit. And that's the end of the story. There's a little more details there, but uh, not as interesting as the man having his leg cut off because it was broken and dying from that extreme uh, approach to health care from the 1840s. There's another funny anecdote about a Mr. Wheaton. His wife was ill and they called the doctor and mrs wheaton according to the doctor would get along sufficiently well but he ordered that she drink some chicken broth the doctor turned to mr wheaton and told him to go out in the yard and slay a chicken now this was a great request for mr wheaton because he had never harmed an animal in his entire life and he didn't even know how to slay a chicken and it was uh not his nature to want to injure animals. So he went over to a neighbor's house, Mr. McAlpin, and asked him to come down to his house and kill the chicken for him. And Mr. McAlpin, who was disgusted, to say the least, and sent back word that uh, the faint-hearted man would have to do it himself because he was too busy and he did not want to do it today. So Mr. Wheaton suddenly was in a situation where he had to chop off the chicken's head. So he went out in the backyard, put the chicken on the stump, raised the axe up, and because he just couldn't bear to watch it, he turned his head as the axe was coming down, and he cut off his own thumb. So that's the uh, little story of Mr. Wheaton and his uh, thumb accident from the 1840s and 1850s. Now, here's a funny story that he entitled A Tale of a Pup. Let me tell you a little story. One fine morning back in 49, I think it was, Billy Lodbell, a boy chum, and I were wandering through the woods up on Capitol Avenue. We came upon a stray puppy, and in the kindness of our hearts, we picked him up, fearing some irreverent boy might steal the little thing. We walked on for about a block or two and then sat down upon a log. We would both like to own the pup. Billy made the proposition that the one that could tell the biggest lie should have the beast. While we were working on this, along came old Elder Merrill. He stopped to admire our prize, and Billy, the dunce, up and told him what we were about, and, well, you should have seen that elder— he stood himself up full length and throwing up both hands in holy horror, he began to preach to us. He gave us the Washington story. You know, the story where Washington could not tell a lie, that sort of thing. Um, I interrupted him here by making the remark that George Washington was probably the only boy at that early period of our country's history that could not tell some kind of a lie if he tried right hard. However, the elder kept on talking and wound up with saying, Boys, look at me. I'm a man over 60, and I never told a lie in my life. I says to Billy, give the elder the pup. And that's the end of that story. I'll let that one percolate there for a few minutes. Now, this next story I found quite amusing, and he's giving quite a bit of detail about the whole incident, and it concerns the first time he ever heard his father curse. Profanity in the abstract is quite bad enough, but pernicious and unintelligible, and I may say ill-directed profanity, is simply a waste of time-honored expletives. I can remember very distinctly the first time I ever heard my father swear. We were then living near the little town of Shelby, New York, and Father was a presiding elder in the Christian church. 
This was before they moved to Michigan. The regular circuit rider for that territory had been taken suddenly sick, and so Father had to do the preaching at the Stapleton schoolhouse or get someone to do it. There was no time to look around, for Dad only received his notice about early candlelight Saturday night. So the old gent was stuck with the job all right. Hence the following morning, tolerable early, my brother went out to the hovel with father to help hook him on. He's talking about hooking on the horse. Now, the day previous, father had traded horses with a friend from Lockport and got a boot, of course. However, the new equine acquisition was much longer than Dahl, his original horse, and the traces would have to be let out a few holes. The traces are the straps or ropes or chains which a carriage or wagon is drawn by when you harness a horse to it. So they had to let out some of the holes to make the traces a little bit longer, which was no easy thing to do, it would appear. However, father being somewhat nervous and anxious for an early start, nearly broke his thumb trying to unbuckle the old stiff tug. Well, then came the expletives. Not, of course as a classic and regular as one would be from a canal driver, but pretty good considering the want of practice. I think it's funny that he mentions that the canal drivers used to cuss and curse. Uh, that's kind of a, a little interesting tidbit of history there, because later in life, after he'd lived in New York, he took the canals, the uh, Erie Canal Passage, to the Great Lakes over to Detroit. So he would have had that experience later on when he's looking back and reflecting on that period of time. So that's just a little interesting anecdote from history that you don't hear otherwise from a biographical account of something. Suffice it to say that Dad and Hank finally got things together and drove around to the cabin door. Hank helped Mother into the sleigh, and away they went and were soon out of sight into the woods. I used to like to see Father in his Sunday clothes with his silk hat, swallow-tailed coat, stand-up collar, and wide, stiff black dicky. Preach? Oh, of course he could. But you should have heard Mother tell of that peculiar Sabbath day's journey. Of course, it was customary in those primitive days. The upper story or crown of a plug hat has a receptacle for any valuable papers or documents. So that's an interesting note of history, too, that the old hats of that period would have a little space inside that you could put papers. And at this particular time, Father had his best sermon, together with sundry memorandums, receipts, dunning letters, etc., safely protected with a silk handkerchief. So his father had all these papers, including that Sunday sermon that he wrote up, inside this little space at the top of his hat. Well, the wind was blowing on this pious couple as they pulled out, and it kept rising until it became almost a hurricane. And just as the elder was crossing a swiftly running wayside brook, only partially frozen over, Dad's hat blew off into the stream, sermon and all. It was a grand sermon, too, one of Lorenzo Dow's best. And if good old Lorenzo had been there, he would have gathered up material for several just as good from among the solid and somewhat distorted hit-or-miss profanity that rattled along down that innocent brooklet with here and there a water-soaked scrap of Dad's pet sermon. So apparently the preacher that had to cancel and pass the job on to his father had already written the sermon for him, 
And uh, that was the sermon that blew off with the hat into the frozen river. Now, remember, they're in a sleigh, so this had to be winter time because they use a sleigh over the snow to get around during that time period. And this brook was partially frozen, so his hat blows off in this gush of wind, and he loses everything. And uh, he's out there cussing over there on his way to deliver a Sunday sermon. So it's just kind of an amusing anecdote from that period of time. And this would have been before the 1840s. Uh, Of course, it was up in New York, but he's telling the story as a recollection that he wrote from his growing up days, um, I guess, in both in New York and early Michigan. And the final story that I'm going to tell is about the maple sugar making that was once an institution in Lansing. And he describes some of the early history of the maple sugar business during that time period. Pure maple sugar is a luxury. Our folks used to make it right here in the present corporate limits of the city 64 years ago. Remember, this was written in 1911. Our boiling works were located where now is the corner of Capitol Avenue and Saginaw Street, and the bush comprised of the adjacent region. We were novices in the business, and Father began by tapping any and all the larger trees. But an old woodsman soon set us right, and the several children of us went to work gathering sap. Our largest and most productive tree stood on the spot where Bailey Buck now lives. Near this tree was a large grapevine on which we youngsters were wont to swing. I shall never forget what one of these swings cost me. I had tarried too long at the vine, and as a punishment, father elected that I should keep my eldest brother company at the boiling down that night. Everything was serene until near midnight. I was sitting half asleep under a large tree near the fire when I was fairly raised from the ground by a most unearthly shriek. My big brother solemnly assured me that the noise came from the prince of darkness in the top of the tree and he was undoubtedly after me, and I momentarily expected to see old Nick himself sliding down that basswood and landing at my feet. I had battled with every known species of reptile at the school section. I had sat at twilight on a log and listened complacently to the plaintive cry of the wily panther. I had seized the young cub by the tail and run homeward with it just to vex the mother bear and make her show her teeth. I had sat with my brothers and sisters on the cabin floor inside the open door and tossed chips at the growling wolf. But I was glad enough when we finally returned to the cabin that night. I was soon in bed and covered up head and ears. And I went to sleep, but oh, what dreams. I saw the satanic majesty come up the ladder, and with a hellish grin on his sooty face, he made straight for me and gathered me up. He soared away into the inky space that lay between our peaceful cabin and his far-famed abode. To say I was frightened would be too weak an expression altogether. I tried the power of prayer. I could only think of the oft-repeated prayer my mother taught me to say on retiring. Now I lay me down to sleep, etc. But this would not do on the occasion of this kind, however. As we sped, the great black wings sending us through space at a rapid pace, and only when I began to feel that fervent heat and smell the fumes of sulfur did I awake to the realization that, very fortunately for me, it was only a horrid dream. I learned on the following day that the cause of my misery was simply a harmless screech owl. I had never heard one of these birds sing before. I have heard similar sounds since at the morning service. I remember one beautiful Sabbath morning in the summer of 1851, just after prayers. Father had no sooner said amen when a neighbor bolted into the open door and yelled, Hogs in your garden, bro, Mevis! 
Dad flew for the garden and over the fence like a colt. Seizing a fence stake in his flight, he went after those hogs and undertook to drive them back into the sty, and they ran in every direction but the right one. Mother saw what a hard time he was having and how blue the air was getting around Father, and she caught up the swole pail, filled it at the barrel, and slipped out to the pen and quietly called, Pig, 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 and every hog came to her as fast as they could get there, and into the pen they went. Practical demonstration of the power of moral persuasion versus brute force. And that is the end of that recollection that he put together and the series of stories that I've put together for you today from this man's writing. And I found each one of them interesting and unique and quite funny, as a matter of fact. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you will be so kind as to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on, that always helps me to get new listeners to the podcast. And if you'd like to follow me on Facebook, you can find me at Michael Delaware Author and like that page and follow me. I post a lot of information about my YouTube channel as well as my podcast episodes there. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And I have some good news. I just learned this past week that my book publication date, the official day, is March 11th, 2024. That is when the book will be available. So I will put links to that very soon, starting in my podcast episode descriptions, so that you guys can go over there and click a button and receive an email notification, if you want, of when the book is available, so you're reminded of that date. So I should have that link later this week, and so I'll try to put it on this episode, so you can check it out and be on the first to be notified when the book is released. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. <laughs>